Vaginismus is the involuntary tightening of pelvic floor muscles that surrounds the vagina. This can make penetration very painful, if not impossible. It prevents females from using tampons or menstrual cups, having a pelvic exam, or of course, engaging in sexual intercourse. Some patients have described the vagina as, quote, turning into a brick, end quote, upon anticipation or initiation of penetration. Vaginismus is of two main types, primary or secondary. Primary vaginismus occurs when a sexually active individual has never experienced pain-free vaginal penetration. The term secondary vaginismus is used when an individual has had vaginal penetration without pain or issue in the past but suddenly develops the condition. The Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada also finds it helpful to determine if vaginismus is situational or global. Situational means that the issue occurs only in certain circumstances, like during sexual intercourse, but not when using a tampon or during masturbation. Global is when the condition is pervasive and occurs in any situation where vaginal penetration is present. In the summer of 2019, the American College of OBGYN released an updated practice bulletin regarding female sexual dysfunction. Included in that discussion is the topic of vaginismus, and that's the focus or the subject matter of our podcast session. So let's get into the issue of vaginismus and dive into this otherwise very frustrating condition and try to find some evidence-based recommendations. Female sexual dysfunction encompasses various conditions that are characterized by reported personal distress in one or more of the following areas, desire, arousal, orgasm, or pain. Although female sexual dysfunction is relatively prevalent, women are unlikely to discuss it with their healthcare providers unless they are asked, and many healthcare providers are uncomfortable asking for a variety of reasons, including a lack of adequate knowledge and training in the diagnosis and management of the conditions. There may be inadequate clinical time to assess the issue, and there may be an underestimation of the prevalence. Approximately 43% of American women report experiencing sexual problems, with 12% considering the problem to be so bothersome that it leads to personal distress. The prevalence of female sexual distress increases through middle age from approximately 10% among women aged 18 to 44 years to a peak of 15% among women aged 45 to 64 years, and then it decreases in older age to about 9% among women aged 65 up to 85 years of age. The American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM-5, identifies four specific types of female sexual dysfunction, female orgasmic disorder, genital pelvic pain, and penetration disorder, and then the last is substance or medication-induced sexual dysfunction. A diagnosis of a DSM-5 classified female sexual dysfunction is made when symptoms persist for at least six months, except in the case of substance or medication-induced sexual dysfunction, and are sufficient to result in significant personal distress. 
In addition, diagnosis requires that the symptoms are not better explained by a non-sexual mental health disorder, a medical condition, severe relationship issues, or other significant life stressors or they may not be an effect of a substance or a medication, except in the case of the substance or medication-induced specific sexual dysfunction. It's important to keep in mind that women often experience more than one type of female sexual dysfunction at a time. Even if a woman's sexual function symptoms do not meet DSM-5 criteria, she still may benefit from evaluation and treatment. Well, who should be screened for sexual dysfunction? Well, OBGYNs and other women's health care providers should initiate a clinical discussion of sexual function during routine care visits to identify issues that may require further exploration and to help destigmatize discussions of sexual function and sexual behavior. The use of a brief sexual function self-report checklist, and there's various online, can help with this facilitation of this often difficult discussion. Another method of introducing sexual function during a routine healthcare visit is to use a generalized statement meant to normalize the issue, followed by a close-ended question and then an open-ended question. Now, let's get into specific treatment options for our topic, which is vaginismus. Remember, that fits under the genitopelvic pain and penetration disorder classification. Pelvic floor physical therapy is recommended for the treatment of genitopelvic pain and penetration disorders to restore muscle function and to decrease pain. Intravaginal prasterone, low-dose vaginal estrogen, and osfemafine can be used in postmenopausal women for the treatment of moderate to severe dyspareunia that is specifically due to genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Remember, that's GSM. Lubricants, topical anesthesia, and moisturizers can also help reduce or alleviate some symptoms. A quick word about vaginal carbon dioxide, or CO2, fractional laser treatment for the treatment of dyspareunia. Vaginal carbon dioxide fractional laser treatment, specifically due to genitourinary syndrome of menopause, according to the college, should not be used routinely and should only be used in research settings. Genitopelvic pain and penetration disorders require an individualized and a multidisciplinary approach to treat the underlying and exacerbating physical and emotional aspects of this condition. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Specialists who may need to be involved include sexual counselors, clinical psychologists, physical therapists, and pain specialists. Genital pelvic pain and penetration disorders may present with a psychogenic component like anxiety, so that must be addressed. Genital pelvic pain and penetration disorder are commonly comorbid with other sexual dysfunctions, including decreased arousal and, in more advanced cases, difficulty with orgasm that may require additional types of intervention. 
All right, let's get back to our main topic here, which is vaginismus. The DSM-5 criteria for genital pelvic pain and penetration disorders are as follows. Genital pelvic pain or penetration disorder should be persistent or recurrent and should have one or more of the following symptoms. Difficulty having intercourse, marked vulvovaginal or pelvic pain during intercourse or penetration attempts, marked fear or anxiety about vulvovaginal or pelvic pain anticipating during or resulting from vaginal penetration. There should be marked tensing or tightening of the pelvic floor muscles for the diagnosis of vaginismus. To strictly adhere to the DSM-5 criteria, symptoms should have persisted for a minimum of six months and caused significant clinical distress in the individual. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, before we get into specific points of therapy, patient education here is key. Education about the vulvovaginal anatomy and pelvic floor can help some women understand the mechanisms and the etiology for genital pelvic pain and penetration disorder symptoms. Self-care counseling should include elimination of common vulvovaginal contact irritants, including soaps, douches, wipes, some scented products, and undergarment pads. Pointing out inflammatory skin changes to the patient around the vulva and the anus may help motivate elimination of wipes or other potential irritants. Data is somewhat conflicting as to the contribution of a previous psychological impact or psychological effect and the outcome of vaginismus or chronic pelvic pain. It is true that a previous sexual assault or a previous pelvic trauma can induce some kind of vaginismus or chronic pelvic pain in the patient. A 2013 Cochrane review included five RCTs that compared control with systemic desensitization with and without other physical therapy for the treatment of vaginismus. All of the RCTs were considered at moderate or high risk of bias and found no significant improvement in symptoms. But a 2013 study that wasn't included in that Cochrane review actually used self-dilation in combination with psychotherapy and it was shown in this RCT to increase the ability of women to have intercourse. So remember, touch that subject lightly because if it is a result of some previous past trauma, then that underlying anxiety or that underlying psychological issue must also be addressed in a compassionate manner. Now, we'll get into medications in just a minute, but we want to address two main categories before we get into any kind of specific meds for this. The first category has to do with vaginal dilations, and the second has to do with physical therapy. Several products, both by prescription and, of course, over-the-counter, that enable vaginal self-dilation to alleviate vaginismus, release pressure pelvic floor trigger points, or correct vaginal stenosis after radiation or other injuries are available. Now, although the literature is scant on the optimal strategies for dilator use, including timing, duration, or technique, self-dilation, either alone or in the presence of a partner if the patient desires, can actually help and this has been proven in an RCT. 
This has been done either alone or in combination with psychotherapy and it has been shown to increase the ability of women to have intercourse. Because patients will use this technique at home, it's important to give them education and instruction to not force the issue to take their time and to begin with a smaller dilator and then they can choose to slowly, progressively increase the dilator size. All right, now let's pause here for a minute because some patients may object to vaginal dilation because they may view that as a provider telling them that they need to insert something in the vagina for masturbation. Now, while vaginal self-dilation can be a type of masturbation activity, remember, that's part of patient education, that it is an ACOG-approved remedy for pelvic floor trigger points or for vaginismus because dilation is actually a medical therapy that the patient can self-do for this real medical condition. All right, let's move on to physical therapy. We've briefly touched on psychological components and the possible use of psychotherapy for this and dilation. Well, what about regular physical therapy? Well, women with dyspareunia due to vaginismus or more general pelvic floor dysfunction, including high tone dysfunction and laxity associated with hypoestrogenism, may benefit from pelvic floor physical therapy. Physical therapy treatment techniques include internal like vaginal and rectal and external soft tissue mobilization and myofascial release. It's also been published that trigger point pressure, visceral, urogenital, and joint manipulation all have some effect. Even electrical stimulation has been shown to give some relief to these patients. There's also been published therapeutic exercises, active pelvic floor retraining, biofeedback techniques, and even bladder and bowel retraining can be done if this is a general pelvic floor dysfunction syndrome. Ideally, the clinician that provides gynecological assessment works in collaboration with a pelvic floor physical therapist who's trained specifically in transvaginal, transanal if necessary, and dyspareunia treatments. All right, team, as we wrap up this podcast, a quick word about medications. Remember, there is a place for local estrogen therapy if the cause of pelvic pain or vaginismus is specifically related to hypoestrogenism. Now, in these cases, low-dose estrogen vaginal therapy or vaginal analog like prasterone, and we've covered all these in previous podcasts, can be used to give back some elasticity and some normal collagen strength back to the vagina. But what about other medications? Well, most other medications that have been studied for genital pelvic pain and penetration disorders have limited or non-compelling evidence of benefit. Many of these agents are used for generalized anxiety, but do not demonstrate benefit for the localized symptoms associated with either genital pelvic pain or penetration disorders. Localized treatment with botulinum toxin type A is still under investigation and its use is not recommended outside of a research setting. Small non-randomized studies that have examined the injection of botulinum toxin type A into the puborectalis and the pubococcygeus muscles as treatment for dyspareunia have actually shown a decrease in self-reported painful intercourse. However, once again, there has been some side effects of this, so as of now, it should only be done in a research setting. In many cases, genital pelvic pain and penetration is treatable without these more expensive therapies or these experimental approaches, which should be pursued in the context of well-designated clinical trials. 
All right, here's our last clinical pearl. Remember, just because a patient presents with vaginismus or genital pelvic pain syndrome, don't automatically assume that it's a manifestation of some hidden, undiagnosed anxiety disorder or it's a result of some past sexual assault or rape. Yes, those are real situations that can absolutely present as secondary dyspareunia due to vaginismus. But remember, it's our job as clinicians to rule out all other possible ideologies and in a compassionate way, do ask the patient about previous assaults or previous conditions that have to be addressed because without doing that, we'll never get to the root of the issue. Thanks for listening to this podcast, and the reference for this comes from the ACOG July 2019 Practice Bulletin on Female Sexual Dysfunction. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. 